What is limited war? And is limited war even possible in the 21st century? That is the subject of this episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. Welcome to Episode 76 of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. I'm Chris Mayer, retired U.S. Cavalry Colonel, former instructor of the U.S. Army's Command and General Staff College, the Naval War College, and currently contract faculty for the Army War College. My intent for these podcasts is to be a kind of war college for everyone, not as in-depth as our national defense universities, but instead focused on what I believe anyway, to be enduring lessons of war, concepts I think every citizen should understand about war, peace, and everything in between. So here's the bottom line. We usually define limited war as warfare using only limited means and methods. Now this causes no end of trouble. What Clausewitz described as limited war was a war to achieve a limited aim or objective. The idea is to attack something of limited value to the opposing side. This will in turn limit the effort to defend that objective, the value of the objective being less for the defender than the cost of defending it, and for the attacker, the value of the objective is more than the anticipated cost of taking it. Now, you might say, this worked two centuries ago, but is it still a valid idea today? Is such war for limited objectives even possible among the great powers in the 21st centuries? I believe that it is possible, but very dangerous. Now, defining limited war as limitations on the means of war is not entirely incorrect. What makes that statement correct or incorrect is whether those means are determined by the value of the political aim the war intends to achieve. The value of that aim must be greater than the costs of achieving it. In this way, it's no different than general war. However, in limited war, the objective is less than the complete overthrow of the enemy. Therefore, we can expect that the enemy will not use its full resources to resist us, and we, in turn, can limit our own means and methods. Simple, right? Well, not really. It requires two things. For one, it requires you to accurately assess the value of the objective and the cost to achieve it. In a representative democracy or a republic, the citizens must agree with that value. This, of course, is less problematic for authoritarian states, but it is a real problem for democracies. The other thing is that you must accurately assess the value the other side places on that objective. As I described in episode 73, this is not a matter of arithmetic. It includes calculating the will of the opposing population and the moral value they place on that object. Another difficulty of limited warfare over the past 75 years is that in many cases an armed conflict might have a limited aim for one power, but was a war of national survival for at least one other country. This began with the U.S. decision to limit the means and methods of war in Korea. Although it worked acceptably well there, the same concepts in Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, and most recently Afghanistan did not work well at all. Russia also learned the challenge of fighting a war with limited means against the Chechen and Afghan people fighting for their national survival. The Arab-Israeli wars were another example, where Israel was fighting for national survival while the Arab side fought for much lower stakes. Any cost-benefit analysis in this regard clearly favored Israel. The Arab-Israeli wars illustrate another fact of limited war in the past three quarters of a century. 
fighting for limited objectives is only possible so long as the parties fighting do not threaten important interests of the great powers. Even China faced harsh lessons in its invasion of Vietnam in 1979. Its limited political aim was to stop Vietnam's war against Pol Pot's Cambodia. Although China had tactical success, it failed to achieve its political objective and withdrew. In this century, Russia demonstrated that war for limited aims or objectives is still feasible, even for great powers. In 2008, Russia invaded and occupied two districts of Georgia. In 2014, it invaded and occupied Ukrainian Crimea and set up puppet states in eastern Ukraine. In both cases, Russia was subjected to international sanctions, but it decided that such sanctions and the military cost were worth achieving those objectives, those political aims. That the 2014 invasion turned out to be a prelude for the general invasion of Ukraine is another matter. But what could yet happen? I will use the People's Republic of China and the Republic of China on Taiwan as a model. First, some definitions. China is a complex notion. Although the United States officially only recognizes one China, the Communist People's Republic of China, the government on Taiwan also considers itself China. Its official name is the Republic of China on Taiwan, and it uses the flag and other symbols of pre-1949 China. Another clarification is the name Taiwan. Taiwan could refer to the main island, formerly known as Formosa, or all 168 islands that make up the Republic of China. To avoid confusion, I'm going to refer to Communist China as the PRC, the government of Taiwan as the ROC, and the main island of the ROC as Formosa. Again, PRC is mainland China, governed by the Chinese Communist Party. ROC is the government on Taiwan and all of its islands. Formosa is the main island of Taiwan. In episode 34, I described the PRC's concept of unrestricted warfare and how that might play out in its intent to bring all territories controlled by the ROC under its control. I described why a full-scale invasion of the ROC focused on the main island of Formosa is, in my opinion, unlikely as it presents too great a risk for the PRC. I suggested that we should expect the invasion of the ROC to begin somewhere else. The political aim would be to influence Asian countries that the United States is an unreliable ally and that it does not care about Asians. But where might that somewhere else be? The main island of Formosa is about the same distance from mainland China as Florida is from Cuba. Some of the ROC's islands, however, are much closer to the mainland. The Matsu Islands might be particularly interesting as a limited objective for the PRC. Some islands of this group are just 5 miles from the coast of mainland China, while being more than 100 miles away from Formosa. There are similar opportunities elsewhere. Kinmen, sometimes said as Kimoi, is even closer to mainland China, sitting astride the mouth of Xiamen Bay, a major port of the PRC. But why would the PRC want to do that? What is the limited political objective? First, to demonstrate that it can, and that the United States and its allies cannot stop it from doing so. Second, 
to undermine confidence in the United States' ability to live up to its security assurances throughout the South Pacific, dividing any anti-PRC coalition and isolating the ROC even further. Third, to promote Beijing's claim that the territories that make up the ROC are illegitimately separated from the mainland and that Beijing is merely reasserting what it would call legitimate control. The Matsu Islands are particularly useful for this third aim. These islands are politically organized as a county, Lianchang. This county formerly consisted of a mainland portion, now within the PRC, and the offshore islands, which were retained by the ROC. The PRC and the ROC retained the name Lianchang for the areas under their respective control. Just as the PRC maintains that Taiwan is a breakaway province of China, an action against the Matsu Islands could be described by Beijing as reclaiming full control of a county recognized by both Beijing and Taipei. Kinmen Islands, sitting as it does astride a major PRC harbor, could provide similar excuses for exercising what they would call as legitimate sovereignty. The PRC tried to invade the Kinmen and Matsu Islands before. In 1958, the PRC shelled the islands with artillery and attempted an amphibious landing on one of the islands that make up Kinmen. The ROC successfully repelled the attack. If it had gone badly for the ROC, however, the Eisenhower administration was prepared to use nuclear weapons to defeat that PRC military action. Of course, this was before the PRC became a nuclear power. If the PRC moved against those islands today, would the United States and other regional partners assist the ROC in defending those islands? Different United States administrations have said different things at different times. Relations between the government on Taiwan and the United States are covered by the Taiwan Relations Act. The Act states that the United States, quote, will consider any effort to determine the future of Taiwan by other than peaceful means a threat to the peace and security of the Western Pacific area and of grave concern to the United States, and shall maintain the capacity of the United States to resist any resort to force or other forms of coercion that would jeopardize the security or social or economic system of the people on Taiwan. I don't know what this sounds like to you, but the, to me, this language seems deliberately ambiguous. It's very different than the language in Article 5 of the NATO Charter, which says that an attack on one is an attack on all. The Taiwan Act is also ambiguous in its definition of Taiwan. The Act defines Taiwan not as all 168 islands, but only as the island of Taiwan and the Pescadores Island Group, which sits a little less than halfway between Formosa and mainland China. Would the United States recognize a PRC attack on Kinmen or Matsu, or both, as meriting any response at all, much less a military response? The omission of these islands in the Taiwan Relations Act could encourage the PRC to believe that the United States places little value on ROC retention of these islands, and invading them is, therefore, suitable as a limited war aim. In 1950, U.S. Secretary of State Dean Acheson described an Asian defense perimeter, which did not include South Korea. 
Now, this may have led North Korea and Stalin to assume that we would not defend the Korean Peninsula. Nonetheless, Truman made the decision that if South Korea was allowed to fall, it would encourage communist aggression elsewhere. A PRC attack on Kinmen or Matsu, although outside of our commitments in the Taiwan Relations Act, could generate similar considerations and a similar U.S. response. But neither Truman nor Eisenhower are in the White House today. I said that a PRC move against Kinmen or Matsu could have a political objective of demonstrating American weakness against PRC resolve. But the PRC must also consider the value that the ROC places on those islands and the cost the ROC could force the PRC to pay. For the ROC, such an invasion could be an example of what Thucydides described as the strong will do what they will, while the weak endure what they must. It could be. The PRC could stage a successful landing, present the world with a fait accompli, and show the world that they can do as they will, America will do nothing, and the ROC must endure it. But I wouldn't bet on it. It's unlikely that the ROC could defeat a determined invasion of the islands. But how determined would a PRC attack be? What losses would the PRC be willing to absorb for this limited objective? Even if successful, it's probable that the ROC forces would fight valiantly. This could create an Alamo-like event for the ROC, galvanizing their population and turning world opinion against the PRC aggression. Even if the United States and its allies took no overt military action, it's probable that sanctions approaching economic warfare would result. Rather than enduring what they must, the government on Taiwan and its people could regard an invasion of these islands, small and isolated as they are, as an existential threat, the first battle in a war for national survival. In that case, their response could be very unpredictable. One more consideration is that Clausewitz wrote that when the cost of achieving the limited aim exceeds its value, the attacker should withdraw and peace ensue. He also wrote that this sometimes doesn't happen, and instead war aims escalate to justify costs already incurred. This means that the attacker should consider the cost of defeat as well as the cost of victory. The United States' power and influence largely survived defeats in Vietnam and Afghanistan. The PRC may not fare so well if the ROC successfully repels an attack against their outlying islands. After all, they've had more than 60 years to prepare since the last attempt. So, is limited war possible in the 21st century? A war for limited aims or objectives? For countries that do not affect great power competition, maybe. The same rule applies for the great powers themselves. Well, that's enough for today. So, until the next time, please hit like, let me know, and come back for the next episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare.